Revelation 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And they have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise, in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was, the de who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say, that, say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall be hurt by the second shall not be hurt by the second death. And the angel of the church, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things says he who has the sharp two edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which, I, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one else except him who receives it. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, These things says the Son, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you all because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation until they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast to what you have till I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give them the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated.
Good morning. Trying something a little different this morning. Bear with me. When the computer printer doesn't work as it's supposed to, we go to plan B. <clears throat> so, praise the Lord that uh, I have something else here to uh, be of use this morning. Revelation chapter 2, 18 to 29, the fourth of seven letters to the churches delivered by Christ. Before we actually dive into these verses, I'd like to begin, if you would just keep your finger there and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. I believe this passage in 1 Corinthians will be helpful to kind of set the stage a bit. Chapter 5, follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. If you're marking in your scripture, verse 6 is one that really, I think, from a principle standpoint, is going to be helpful as we turn here in a moment back to Revelation chapter 2. Do you not know that a little leaven... Leavens the whole lump. Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner not even to eat with such a person. You know, the Bible, whether we're talking about a letter to the church at Corinth, we could turn to Ephesians 5 and see the call there for the church at Ephesus to walk in love, to walk in light as opposed to darkness, to walk in wisdom. We could turn to 1 Thessalonians and the letter to the church at Thessalonica and in particular read chapter 4, 1 through 8. And see how it is that we are to walk. How it is we're to please God. We go back to Revelation chapter 2. And this morning looking at verses 18 through 29. We're looking at this church. The message to this church at Thyatira. The longest letter. Yet delivered to perhaps... One of the least significant cities of the seven. Kind of interesting. A few weeks ago we were looking at the church at Smyrna. And we talked about how little content was found there. But, wow, there's a lot to unpack in those four verses, the church at Smyrna. And here we have a church that really amongst the seven, this is one really I think many believe are the most insignificant, if you will, of the seven. And yet we see the most written. One of the things that we need to look at here in this particular letter is to see that this particular church at Thyatira had many glowing Christian qualities. And yet, this church seems to be absent of a backbone. And it may be easy to point to the leadership in this church I believe the message, though, is intended to the church as a whole. 
You see, the problems that exist impact the body at Thyatira. And while leadership, no doubt, is critical in guarding the body, the body itself has responsibility before the Lord to care for other parts of the body. I believe an important part of this message is for us to understand that you are connected. As a part of the body, you're connected one to another. You operate under a common banner, Christ. You may have diverse gifts, yet you are called to walk in unity through one spirit. And so whether the message is written to Corinth, to Ephesus, to Thessalonica, or Thyatira, the message is consistent. Sin is serious. Sin needs to be addressed. Sin, even the smallest amount, influences the whole body, not just the individual in that body. Sin is not only to be addressed, but it is to be dealt with swiftly in love for the purpose of upholding the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ in the hope of restoring a fallen brother or sister in the Lord. As you read through this letter, you're going to see there's a mixture of Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos here. But you're also going to see that there exists here a very unique quality as well represented in the church at Thyatira. As you study the text, I want you to look for similarities in the first three churches we've addressed and look for unique aspects found here in Thyatira. Christ is writing these messages to the churches and he has a word for them to hear. And these words are applicable to the church today. And I pray that this church here at Hope in Christ would hear the message being delivered to this particular church at Thyatira. And you know, the content for me as I was studying, reading this passage, it serves for me as a, as a signpost for what God thinks about sin and what his church ought to do about it. This particular letter tells me what God thinks about sin and what the responsibility of the church is toward that sin. What should we do about it? So before we actually get there, let's go ahead and look at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So here, again, some very common parts to each of these letters. We see the greeting and we see the self-designation of Christ. Okay? This letter is the fourth of seven, written to a church in Thyatira, which, if you're looking on a map, remember we started out in Ephesus, then we went north to Smyrna, we went further north to Pergamos. Now we're actually making a turn, we're going southeast, and we're landing this morning in Thyatira, approximately 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. Now, from what we know of Thyatira, it was not a political center. It was not a major religious center, per se. But it was a major city for practicing one's trade. Okay? Trade guilds abounded in Thyatira. One writer says there were associations for bakers and bronze workers, for clothiers and cobblers, and for weavers and tanners and dyers and potters. So if you were a maker of wares, of these things, of these objects... If you had a business, Thyatira was the place to be. In fact, we see from the scripture, when we look at Acts 16, 14, we see someone that many of us have probably heard of, this woman named Lydia. Acts 16, 14, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. This is Paul's, one of Paul's missionary journeys in Philippi. The text tells us she was a seller of purple. She was... Selling the purple dye, which was a, a commodity that was transacted in the city of Thyatira. Makes good sense. When we find out what Lydia did, she's from this particular area. This is what they did. This is one of the products that they sold in Thyatira. You know, if you were to thrive in business in Thyatira, you were expected to participate 
in a particular association or trade guild. To sell your wares, it was important to be connected to an association. You see, your, your networking and your business clientele was predicated upon the trade guild that you belonged to. Not a member? You might not be in business for long if you lived in Thyatira. So I want you to consider that context as Christ delivers his words to this church. Now, what name does Christ designate for himself in this particular letter? The text says, these things says the Son of God. One writer says, Jesus first describes himself here with a title that emphasizes his deity. His deity. He is the Son of God. The Son of God is saying these words. The one who took on flesh and blood. The one who came down from heaven to tabernacle among men. The one who lived out what it means to walk righteously. The one who willingly died on the cross for you, taking upon himself your sin, removing the power of sin, removing and canceling the guilt of sin. This is how he identifies himself to the church at Thyatira. And so as you receive the words, please remember that they come directly from the Son of God. The Son of God, I believe, is an interesting title used here to this particular church. Because as I recall what the Son of God did when he came to earth, he dealt with sin, didn't he? He didn't just allow it to continue, see it happen, but he dealt with it. Praise God, he dealt with it. Once and for all, he dealt with it. We see in John's gospel that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And so as we look at this text and we see the description of this Son of God, we see he has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And that flame of of fire speaks to that judgment of the Son of God. That, That penetrating, piercing And oftentimes we see it in the scripture, that very look. In fact, we see Hebrews 4.13 tells us that there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Listen to what that says. The eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is not going to be an option. Okay? Everything is open. He sees all. Everything is laid bare before him. Okay? His eyes are, are penetrating eyes. This flame of fire. You see, John... In chapter 1, saw those flaming eyes, Revelation 1, 14. And the result of that is Revelation 1, 17, he fell down at his feet as dead. You see also from Luke chapter 22, 61 and 62. You might remember the story of Peter. Lord, I'm going to go with you all the way. And Jesus tells him what's going to happen. And we see... Luke's Gospel, 22. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. I wonder what that look was. I also was reminded of of Judas, and I wonder what those eyes of Jesus looked like when Judas approached the Son of God late that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, Judas had arranged for the soldiers that that this man that they were looking for would be the one that he kissed. I wonder about the eyes of Jesus Jesus as Judas approached him. What that look was like. Eyes like flame of fire. What about the scribes and the Pharisees upon bringing the woman caught in adultery? They seemed so sure of themselves, didn't they? As though they trapped him. They got him on this one. And then Jesus stoops down to the ground. He starts writing out a silent message on the ground. And then he rises up and he says these words. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Can you picture his eyes? Those eyes like a flame of fire, piercing their hearts as he spoke. 
You see, not only does the Son of God have eyes like a flame of fire, but the text also says he has feet like fine brass. One writer said he chose this description of himself in reference from Revelation 1.15 to emphasize his purity because brass is pure and highly refined in the fire and also emphasizes his steadfastness because brass was the strongest metal known in the ancient world and feet like fine brass would be strong and unmovable. So we have here the title, the Son of God. We see that as the Son of God, Jesus addressed sin and paid the price for sin, the sin of man. We see these eyes like a flame of fire and that Jesus sees all things, that judgment resides with the Son and this feet like fine brass. We see Jesus himself is pure, is holy. We see he's our rock. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, what about his con- commendation? Look at verse 19. The commendation. What are some things the church at Thyatira, what are they doing well? What is it that Christ points out? He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now here's the familiar phrase, I know your works. We've seen this with each one of the letters. Okay? You know, referring to these four qualities in verse 19... One writer says, here are four sterling Christian qualities indeed. Speaking of love, service, faith, and patience. Thyatira not only rivaled Ephesus in Christian service, but exhibited the love which Ephesus lacked, preserved the faith which was imperiled at Pergamum, and shared with Smyrna the virtue of patient endurance and tribulation. These words remind me, in part, Paul's words to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 and 3, says, We give thanks to God for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, our Father. So in addition to these glowing qualities, let's not miss what the text says here. He adds one other commendation. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. See, Thyatira is a place where spiritual growth is happening, church. Growth is happening. It's going on. It's occurring. The works they did at the first are dim compared to the works being carried out in the present. They are maturing. They're growing in the faith. This church seemingly is not satisfied with the status quo. They're examples of a healthy body. Growth is evident according to Christ. I want you to think about how many years you've been in Christ. Some of you, that's not been a very long time. Others, it's been a long time. I want you to think about the work God has done in you over that time. I want you to think about the, the sanctification of God. How has he made you holy in heart and in conduct over the time that you've been in Christ? What things has he pulled you away from? What sins that once ensnared you are now no more because of the Lord's sanctifying work in you? Second Peter ends with a call to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growth in grace and knowledge of the Lord. Both are necessary. They're connected. Growth is not merely an intellectual exercise. You see, as you grow in knowledge of the Lord Jesus, you come to realize and you come to appreciate and embrace all the more the wonderful grace of Jesus. That grace he offers is greater than all your sin. That grace reaches to all the lost. That grace reaches even the most undefiled. 
See, growing in grace impacts who you are as a child of the king. It impacts who you are as a husband and as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a brother and a sister, as a friend. Grace is intended to affect each arena of your life. It's grace that pardons and cleanses within. That's what we've been singing about. You know, the turmoil some of you perhaps are currently experiencing. Perhaps it comes about because you failed to see and receive and welcome the grace of God into your life. It's by this grace that you're saved through faith and this not of your own. It is a gift of God, lest any one of you should boast. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. And, and the church at Thyatira is growing in their works of God. Praise the Lord for progress in the faith. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. That is a wonderful thing. And so, you know, really thinking about it from your own perspective, how is it with you this morning? Is there any evidence in your life bearing fruit worthy of repentance? Christ commends the church at Thyatira for growth and good works. But however good that is, he now turns a corner in the letter and spends a good deal of time addressing some things that need corrected. So starting in verse 20, we see the rebuke. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So those good works, those glowing qualities that were found in 19, same church is also being reproved for the content in verse 20. What are some warning signs here in verse 20? What are some things we take note of? Well, first thing we see is that there is a Jezebel in the church. There's a Jezebel in the church. The spirit of Jezebel in Christ's church. I don't know if this woman's name was Jezebel. I tend to think it wasn't. But I do believe that the spirit of this particular woman was characterized by the woman we know from the Old Testament named Jezebel. In fact, it's helpful just from a biblical context to be able to see in 1 Kings 16, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took his wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Jezebel is the wife of King Ahab. Later on, 1 Kings 21, 20, Ahab and Runs into Elijah, the prophet Ahab says, Have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah says, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. I read that phrase because it's important as you read a few verses later in Kings 21, 23 through 26. Listen to these words. Concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. By the way, that comes to fruition in 2 Kings chapter 9. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab, here it is, who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Here's the key part of the verse. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols 
according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Jezebel, this woman Jezebel. Notice in the text in Revelation, she calls herself a prophetess. Okay, Christ isn't saying she is. Christ is saying this is what she calls herself. Okay, a prophetess. Notice also these things that he has against Thyatira. He has these things against Thyatira because, look at those words, because you allow, because you tolerate, because you permit this woman. Okay, a couple things here that the church was allowing to take place. First of all, they're allowing a woman to teach. Allowing her to teach. Calls herself a prophetess to teach. She's doing some teaching. I don't know exactly what that involved. But she was teaching. That's why a little bit later it refers to this thing that Jezebel is carrying out in the church as doctrine. She was teaching. She was also seducing Christ's servants. The word seduce there has in mind to lead astray. So she's teaching, which is something that we see elsewhere in Scripture. A woman is not to have authority to teach over a man, right? Timothy tells us that, chapter 2, verse 12. And she's seducing Christ's servants. She's leading them astray. Where? To do what? Well, the text tells us to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Notice that she is espousing a similar doctrine to that of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Revelation 2.14, right? If you look at the end of 14, 2.14, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. The outworking of these kinds of doctrines... There's, there's a lot of similarity here, church. Okay? So, the doctrine of Balaam, doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Jezebel. It's important we see that there are some similarities there. So, what's at stake here in the church at Thyatira? What's at stake? The church is allowing this woman to spread her wickedness within the life of the body. The word allow, as I mentioned, is, has in mind to permit or to tolerate. The church is, is not addressing the sin being stirred up by the spirit of this Jezebel. They are allowing it to happen. They're content permitting such a thing to move forward. They're watching it all go on before their eyes. Sin! It's being tolerated and handled as though it were acceptable, just another event in the life of the church at Thyatira. Remember that this is a message to the church. The ramifications of what's happening at Thyatira impacts the whole church. And yes, there may be one woman instigating the sin... But the ramifications of sin impact the body life. Corinthians 5, 6 says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Corinthians 5, 11. He says, Now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. You see, there's a responsibility, I believe, here. A principle that's being expressed in the text. Flee wickedness. Abstain from evil. Cling to what is good. Cling to sound doctrine. Guard the sound doctrine upon which you stand. And the elders, no doubt, are charged with guarding the flock. But the parts of the body are also called to exhort one another daily. To call one another to live as the word demands a believer in Christ to live. 
the parts of the body are not to blindly receive any teaching that may come their way. Galatians 3, you might remember this. Paul says, oh foolish Galatians. Exclamation point. Foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And we see other passages in Peter chapter 1, 22 and 25. And Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12. That speak to making sure that we understand who we are in Christ Jesus. And that as a pilgrim, as a sojourner, we're walking away that's compatible with the things of Christ. And not the things of the world, and surely not the things of this Jezebel. What's missing here at Thyatira? If I could put it in one word holiness. Holiness. I'd like to just read an excerpt. He says these better than I I could, so I'll I'll share these with you. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, gives us some handle on holiness. The habit of being of one mind with God according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing With God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. He goes on and he describes this holy man. A holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. A holy man will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. A holy man will labor to mortify the desires of his body, to crucify his flesh with his affections and lusts, to curb his passions, to restrain his carnal inclinations, lest at any time they break loose. A holy man will not stand all the day idle. He will not be content with doing no harm. He will try to do good. He will strive to be useful in his day and generation and to lessen the spiritual wants and misery around him as far as he can. A holy man will follow after purity of heart. A holy man will follow after the fear of God. A holy man will follow after humility. A holy man will follow after faithfulness in all the duties and relations in his life. Holy persons should aim at doing everything well. They should strive to be good husbands and good wives, good parents and good children, good masters and good servants, good neighbors, good friends, good subjects, good in private. And good in public. Good in the place of business and good by their firesides. Holiness is worth little indeed if it does not bear this kind of fruit. A holy man will follow after spiritual mindedness. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above. And to hold things on earth with a loose hand. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven. And to pass through this world like a stranger and pilgrim. Traveling to his home. A holy man is not at peace with indwelling sin as others are. He hates it, mourns over it, and longs to be free from its company. 1 John 3, 3 says, Everyone who has this hope, this hope of this longing of Christ coming back, everyone who has this hope in him, in Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. So the context of the the trade guilds comes into play here regarding the sin of this woman, Jezebel. The sin very well was manifesting itself within the context of the trade guild meetings and gatherings. This woman was perhaps a catalyst for others in the body to participate in the activities of the trade guilds, which would have included the very things being espoused right here in the text, sexual immorality, eating things sacrificed to idols, And as I got to thinking about that, it opened my eyes to the schemes of the evil one. You see, he'll do what he can to keep you from Christ. He'll do what he can to keep you from attending the gathering of the saints. He'll do what he can to distract you even while you sit here today. He'll take full advantage 
of your absence from other brothers and sisters and do his best to seduce you, to lead you astray from the truth. See, he, he delights to see you dabble in the things of the world. That's great delight to him. It brings him great joy that a believer in Christ would bow down to his trinkets, these gods of sexual immorality and idolatry and covetousness and, and the list goes on. Do you think you're safe this morning because you're here in this building? You think you can watch your computer screen during the week and then show up here and everything's okay? Think you can participate in wickedness and walk in darkness throughout the week and then come to this safe place, this base. You know, remember as a child and you play playing tag and you've got a base and I can go here, I'm safe. Is that how you view meeting together in a building? See, the, the sin that was marking the church at Thyatira most likely happened outside their regular worship times. <laughs> most likely did. And if the evil one can't keep you from the Lord's house on Sunday, he can spend the rest of the week trying to distract you and seduce you away from the things of Christ. And he can do that through one available to him, a Jezebel spirit, willing to carry out his work. Look at 21 to 23. This is Christ's response. To Je it is an immediate response he has here. After the rebuke, Christ is going to now tell, here's what I'm going to do about it. Because, you see, the church was allowing this to happen. Christ immediately goes to now, here's my response to it. He says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So after rebuking the church for allowing Jezebel to do her work amongst the body, Christ immediately instructs the church on how he's going to respond, how he's going to act to the situation. And remember, this is his church. He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. And he's taking action, and he's going to take action against sin. And verse 21 speaks to the time he gave this woman to repent. The text says she did not repent, or literally that she did not want to repent of her sexual immorality. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the mercy of Christ is great. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. See, the Lord's tender mercies are wonderful. His patience towards sinners is great. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you know, there may be some of you, even here this morning, you're walking in sin. Right? You're walking in sin. You're making a habit of walking in sin. You recognize it's sin. You know that it's sin. It's clearly a, a sinful lifestyle that you're living. And I'd like to hold the words of the Son of God right here before you today. And I just let those words minister to your spirit. I gave you time to repent of your... And for you, you can fill in the blank, whatever that may be. You see, he does give time. Praise the Lord, he gives time. And, and because we see what it says here, make today the day that you turn your heart to God and come before him in humility, repenting of that sin that's been entangling you. Sin is sticky, it sticks... And it's been, some of you have been entangled in it for quite some time. Verses 22 and 23 then speak to the actual judgment upon this woman, Jezebel. Notice the judgment comes after a period of time. A time Christ allotted for Jezebel to repent. The judgment involves casting her into a sickbed. Find that kind of interesting. The bed she once used for her wicked deeds is now used by Christ for his judgment. Hebrews 13, 4 says marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Doesn't say might, God will judge. And that judgment we see in John's gospel is carried out 
through the Son. Notice that those who commit adultery with her will encounter judgment from Christ as well. It says, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Now there's a caveat attached to that particular judgment. Notice the text. It says, unless they repent of their deeds. And there's an interesting little footnote. You probably have a little footnote text there where the word there is. And the little, if you trace the note over it, it says her deeds. You see, they're participating in this wickedness of Jezebel. But the reality is what's being contrasted here, what's being looked at is this doctrine of Jezebel and Christ is saying, follow me, follow the truth, follow this way. So really what's being contrasted are the deeds of Jezebel and the deeds of Christ. That's why interpretation wise we see that it is a singular her deeds, but no doubt they are participating in this. And once again, we see right here that repentance is held out. Mercy is extended. You see, God's not unreasonable, church. God's not cold. He's not, he's not calculated wanting to squash everyone who commits sin. He does address sin, though. <laughs> he does address it. He doesn't do the proverbial lift the rug, sweep it under. He addresses it. He deals with it. You see, because his desire is to conform each one of you, self-included, into the image of his son. We see in verse 23, the fruit of following Jezebel leads to death. Christ's judgment upon sin, and in particular this sin of sexual immorality. Notice he's not sending a message here only to this church at Thyatira. Look at the text, verse 23. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches or examines the minds and hearts. You know, when you run one of those scans on your computer, it oftentimes takes a couple minutes to complete. Take some time. But you know, when, <clears throat> when Christ pronounces judgment, <clears throat> its impact is immediate. And see, when Christ returns in all his glory, the Bible paints a picture that it will be recognized by all. It's going to be unmistakable. We're going to see it, every one of us. Praise the Lord. I look forward to that day. You see, the sin that's been permitted in Thyatira is about to be judged. And when it is, the churches, plural, will know. <laughs> They're going to know about it. It says, and I will give to each one of you, you, plural, according to your, plural, works. I believe there's a word here in the way this is rendered in the text. There's a word here about dealing with sin in the body. Christ himself judges his church of which each of you, each of you, are a part. And we see Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 talks about consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, there's something to be said here about our lives and a call to holiness with each part of the body. Remember the story in the Old Testament of Achan? Remember that story? There's one guy who just, you know, he saw that and it looked good. And put it under his tent. And they go out to face lowly AI. Remember what happened? They got routed. And trying to figure out what, how did that happen? God says, get up off your feet and get the sin out of your camp. There's one guy that was holding the whole group of them back. Deal with the sin. And we do that collectively as a body, exhorting, admonishing, encouraging, coming alongside, helping one another to walk in this way. Look at 24 and 25. 
his response to those not following Jezebel. As many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, I will put, you, put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. So he has a word here for those who have not known this doctrine, referring to the doctrine of Jezebel, which has led some astray. Now, praise the Lord. I was reading this, and just a praise. Praise the Lord. Not everyone has gone after this doctrine. <laughs> as bad as this is, praise the Lord, there are some who have been holding fast. Praise the Lord, there are some in Thyatira who have not taken the bait of Satan. Praise the Lord that some have not exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Notice that this doctrine is connected with the depths of Satan, or another rendering might be the deep things of Satan. And the question may come, how could a believer in Christ ever fall for these deep things of Satan? One writer says to, to effectively confront Satan, and he's using this as an example of some of the reasoning that people use today. To, to effectively confront Satan, you must enter his strongholds and learn his depths in order to conquer him. He says, people use similar reasoning in misguided spiritual warfare today. The Bible says we are to be aware of the evil one's schemes. Paul was not ignorant of the evil one's devices, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Being aware of them and being a participant in them are two different things. We got to be clear on that. See, the, the Bible speaks to everything we need to know about his devices. The Bible does. No need to immerse yourself in his devices. No need to experience them firsthand so I can just get a better handle on, on what they are. <laughs> no! Don't go there. Stick to the scriptures. Walk in holiness. Long for sanctification. And you begin to see clearly where God desires for you to be. And conversely, where the evil one would like you to be. You, you begin to see very clearly as you walk in the way of this word. What God's ways are. And you also understand very clearly, there's a line. You see it very clearly as you're walking in his way what the schemes of the evil one are as well. They're evident. You don't have to dive into it, the pool of wickedness, and swim around in the pool of wickedness for a while to be able to say, oh, that's pretty wicked. For those following Christ and not the ways of Jezebel, Christ has a word of encouragement. A word to persevere, he says, but hold fast. That word, hold fast, it's the word that was used of the man by the gate. Remember the man at that, that the gate that was, that was healed? The gate called beautiful. I love the word because that word was described of that man who had once for a long period of time been by that gate. And at once he's healed, he holds fast. He clings to Peter and John. And in the same way here, we see this word, hold fast. No, don't let go what you have for how long? How long are you supposed to hold fast? Till I come. You see, you've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been given life eternal by God through his son. You've been given the spirit of God to dwell within you forever. You've been given this sure word of testimony. Put on the armor of God and stand, Ephesians 6 says. Stand. Stand strong in the time that you have here, understanding that you're a part of the battle. And the outcome of the battle, church, here's good news, it's certain. If you are in Christ, you are more than a conqueror, the Bible says. 
And yet, for a time, the battle rages on. Skirmishes for the soul of man continue to be waged, church. Hold fast to what you have. And by the way, what you have, Ephesians 1 tells us we have unsearchable riches in Christ Jesus. That's what we have. Hold on to that until Christ returns. On the heels of holding fast comes a reward. 26 to 28, the call to overcome. You know, this is the only letter of the seven that combines overcoming with keeping Christ's works until the end. Only letter. If you read the other letters, all you see is to him who overcomes. But in this letter, it's he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations and I will give him the morning star. You see this overcoming and keeping Christ's works until the end they go together. And there's two rewards here in the scripture for the one who overcomes and keeps his works until the end. First, Christ says he will give them authority over the nations. And the quote here is taken from Psalm chapter 2, where God has given authority to his son for ruling the nations as the rightful king in the midst of rebellious, unbelieving nations. And, and the word there in the text, rule, is actually the word where we get our word shepherd. It's kind of interesting, because when you read the text, it's not necessarily one of those flowery shepherding kind of images, is it? Right? The imagery here is... Perhaps what not, you, th you don't think about it in these terms when you consider shepherding. Shepherding with a rod of iron. <laughs> it's a wonderful picture, though, of the wrath of God and the mercy of God on display. You see, he, he shepherds lovingly and firmly, doesn't tolerate sin, but judges it. He doesn't allow it to continue in his midst. As, a, as the great shepherd, right, he leads his people in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. The reward here for the overcomer is that he too is given authority over nations. This is a borrowed authority, by the way. This is a granted authority. Nothing you created, nothing you manufactured on your own. But a reward for holding fast, being faithful to the end. And then secondly, Christ says that he will give the overcomer, the one who keeps his works until the end, he will give him the morning star. That's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? The morning star. You know, just keeping in context of, of the book of Revelation, the reward, I believe, of the morning star is that of Christ himself. Revelation chapter 22, 14 through 17. It says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral. That's kind of appropriate in light of the text we're looking at. Sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Those folks are outside. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Church, is there a better reward than Christ himself? Hold fast and you'll gain Christ. I do hope that as a Christian, that's the one thing we long for, is Christ. 29, then he concludes with a call to hear. A familiar verse, but very appropriate in light of the call here. In this, to this church, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the call here, church, goes out to four groups of people this morning based upon this context. Those who are leading others in the doctrine of Jezebel promoting the depths of Satan. It goes out to a second group of people. Those who are following others and carrying out the doctrine of Jezebel. It goes out to a third group of people. Those who are permitting, those who are allowing the doctrine of Jezebel to carry on in the church. And it goes out to a fourth group of people. Those who are holding fast to the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, Thyatira had a lot of glowing qualities, but nevertheless had some glaring sin issues. Not the entire body was engulfed in it. But the entire body is called to account for it. 
for allowing it to continue. You know, as I was thinking about the groups of people here and the call to hear, I was reminded of a, of a scene in a movie. I don't know, some of you maybe have seen it, maybe you haven't. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a scene that comes to mind as I think about this and, and this closure. It's a story about Maximus, who's a, who's a general in the Roman army. And he ends up becoming a slave. Ends up becoming a gladiator. And on this particular occasion, he and a bunch of men are, are, are about to go out into the Colosseum to be a spectacle. They're essentially about to be put out in the arena to die. It was staged in such a way that the gladiators on this particular day were going to lose the battle. They were reenacting a particular battle from history. And these gladiators were going to die. And this one man, Maximus, before the enemy and the opposition comes out of the gates, he gathers the troops together. And they're close and they're huddled together next to one another and they've got their shields and their armor with them. And the one thing that stands out to me, what he says to that group, stick together. Stick together and we can do this. Because you see, as that gets played out, you see one guy leaving the group and going out trying to fly solo. And he gets picked off. And another goes out and he gets picked off. But as the group stays together, they gain victory. Church, it's a powerful illustration in my mind as I think about this text and I think about what was going on in the church at Thyatira. I think of the schemes of the evil one and how he would love more than anything to see one of you just go out on your own so he can just pick you off. But you see, when we're together, when we're connected, when we're doing what parts of the body ought to be doing, admonishing, exhorting, bearing with one another, coming alongside one another, when we're doing those things, the evil one has no foothold, he has no place, and church, this church, can gain victory if we understand the power of being together. And understand what the Bible says about how the parts are connected. There are no solo parts in the body of Christ. Let's remember that, church. Let's remember that. And let's remember the one thing that seemed to be lacking in this church at Thyatira. The one thing that churches today all around us need to be sure we're exercising and operating in. Holiness. Holiness. Not many people today are in that line. They don't like to wait in that line. They don't like to stand in that line. But nevertheless, it's something called for. Christ himself is called for this very thing, for his church. And we are to, in the time until he comes back, we are to be about the work of purifying ourselves just as he is pure. Remember, he's called us, be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the reminder how you deal with sin. Thank you for addressing sin. Sin is not something we address often enough in our lives. We see that here at this church at Thyatira, you address sin. You dealt with it. Oh Lord, I pray that as your people, we too would deal with it. That each part of the body would take responsibility for the sin in their lives. And that we would be able to come alongside one another and to encourage one another and exhort one another to walk in the way of truth, to walk in the gospel way. And not to walk in any doctrine characterized by Jezebel or Balaam or Nicolaitans. Oh, Father, I pray that we would sharpen one another. That we would desire to be sharpened by one another. 
that we would understand there's not a one of us that have arrived. We've not got it all figured out. We need each other. And the world may say that we're weak. They may say you're just needing a crutch. They may say whatever it is they're going to say, Lord, I pray that we would not fear what man says. We would fear you. And we would fear what your word has to say. And we would walk in that way. We would walk in the truth. That we would delight in walking in the law of the Lord. And know that only in first delighting in you will that delighting in your word actually happen in our lives. Oh Lord, may we take great delight in you and who you are and what you have done. And Lord, we praise you that you have given to us your word this morning. And designated yourself here in scripture as Christ is writing, the Son of God, writing these words. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that we can be called a child of yours. And I do pray, Lord, that we would be faithful until the end. Lord, that we would hold fast, that we would hold tightly, that we would not let go, that we would each day put that armor on and we would stand. And we would stand understanding that we are victors in Christ Jesus. And in the meantime, understand the works and the schemes of the evil one, that he wants nothing more than to see a Christ follower go by the wayside, get picked off in the battle. Oh, Lord, may we speak when necessary. May we address the sin always, Lord. May your church be a pure church. Oh, Father, may we be about the work of guarding and protecting the purity of your church, over which Christ himself is the head. Thank you, Father, for your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.